It's Monday, January 3rd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Checking in on our furry friends and the people who help keep them healthy, the pandemic has caused all sorts of backlogs at veterinary offices. Vet staff have been increasingly stressed out as there have been spikes in demand for services, slowed down curbside protocols, labor shortages, and pets having to be turned away in some cases. H.G. Watson, contributor to The Guardian, joins us for what to know. Next, ever wonder why you feel like you might not fit into a particular political party? Americans are divided for sure, but it goes beyond a left or right thing. Even within each party, there are deep divides. Pew Research sorted American ideologies into nine distinct categories, four that lean left, four that lean right, and the stressed sideliners in the middle. And for those that do fit into the center, they often hold little common ground. Baxter Oliphant, senior researcher at the Pew Research Center, joins us for the wide spectrum of political beliefs. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. And so if, I, if there's any huge thing I want people to take away from this story is, you know, to, even if you're frustrated, even if you're worried about your animal, please take a breath and, and understand you're dealing with medical professionals who themselves are under a lot of strain and are really just trying to do the best for you and your pet. It's a very hard circumstance for everybody. Joining us now is H.G. Watson, freelance writer and contributor to The Guardian. Thanks for joining us, H.G. Hi, thanks so much for having me wanted to talk about the effect of the pandemic on veterinary clinics. Now, I am a, a pet owner. I have a French bulldog. His name is Rigby. I love him. But, you know, I know a lot of people out there got new pets over the pandemic. And then just even dealing with your current pet, the industry kind of got thrown for a loop. There was massive closures. Everything had to be retooled. You know, so we saw a spike in demand for services. There was a lot of transition to this kind of curbside pickup and drop off thing for your pets. There was labor shortages as, you know, it happened across the country, really. And it created a lot of backlogs at veterinary clinics. People had to go to emergency room services, all sorts of stuff happened. So HG, tell us a little bit more about this and the stress that it put on on veterinary clinic staff, too. One of the doctors I spoke to for this piece, Dr. Tiana Tome. You know, she had told me when they the pandemic first started, things were so quiet for them. You know, she was wondering if she was even going to be able to keep her business. But really rapidly, that started to change because just even the base being able to do the appointment took a lot slower because, of course, clients couldn't actually come in the room with their pets. Every time that they needed to talk to the owner, they'd have to make a cell phone call if they wanted approval to run a test anything like that. So that first domino falls, and then you complicate that, of course, with COVID protocols. The people in the clinics have to stay safe themselves. They have a risk as well as medical professionals. And then you also start dealing with the fact that a lot of the profession is actually women. A majority of vets and vet staff are women. They're dealing with childcare issues, all sorts of things. And then in some places, you're seeing spikes in increase of service. So there's still definitely a lot of debate about whether there actually was an increase in pet ownership during the pandemic. But certainly, I think some places saw increases in adoption rates or in purchases of puppies that might have just been a short spike. But that meant there were a lot of first-time dog owners, you know. And again, one of the other vets told me that with dog owners, uh, especially puppies, you know, I I think you know this yourself, they want to eat everything. They're constantly getting into trouble. Sometimes you might be taking them in like every two weeks, right? So that's a lot of appointments and a lot of strain on this profession. 
One thing that's kind of interesting, pets had to be turned away from certain veterinary offices. You know, that happened to me a couple times where my regular vet couldn't see my dog. So we had to go to the urgent care. Obviously, it's more expensive. (laughs) You know, there's all sorts of other things that go with that, too. But, you know, you get turned away from one place and you have to go find somewhere else in in certain cases that can be deadly to a pet. Uh, I think you wrote a, an anecdotal story about, you know, somebody having to turn away a cat and, and they didn't make it through because they needed very intensive care. That was a very sad story that came from Dr. Lisa Kimball, who's based in Massachusetts. And what she had said was, you know, that they have this cat who, who needed 24-hour care, needed intravenous fluids. And most general practitioner vets are not set up, you know, they don't have staff that stay overnight. They're not meant to do 24-hour care, right? They're there for wellness visits and for preventative medicine. So when she tried to get this cat into emergency hospitals in the area, both essentially said they didn't have the capacity either because of long wait times or because the hospital itself was full. And, you know, that's that's a really scary thing. You know, I, I definitely, I feel very lucky. You know, I am a pet owner myself. And during the pandemic, knock on wood, I haven't had to use any emergency services. But, you know, I certainly have been in situations with my dog where she just wasn't eating food one day. And it was like, all right, I want to get her into the vet sooner or later. But then all of a sudden, like for yourself, it was like, well, the vet can't see the dog for like a week. Yeah. And it, 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 it you can't ask your dog, well, how are you feeling? Is your tummy hurting, right? You're, you're just trying to playing a guessing game, whether they're just, you know, not hungry that day or if something's really wrong. So it can be so stressful on both sides. And the backlogs, right? So this is kind of where we're still at. There's still a, this recovery period where a lot of the veterinary offices are dealing with backlogs. They haven't been able to catch up just yet. I think that's definitely still a contributing factor in what's been driving the delays. Because many of the vets told me that because of the pandemic, people were putting off the wellness visit. So, you know, they maybe put back when the dog was going to get its or cat was going to get its yearly shot or things like that. Right. But now they've realized, oh, we've got to do this. So now everybody's trying to make appointments as things are opening back up and there's just not enough room. You know, obviously this is all stressful stuff for our little furry loved ones and whatnot. But so it puts a big stress factor on the pet owners. Obviously, you're trying to get some care for the pet, but even for the veterinary staff, uh, you know, and a lot of them are animal lovers. That's why they got into the profession. And, you know, when they have to turn people away, people are jerks, (laughs) you know, with that staff, there's a lot of stress that's put on that staff. One of the things that really stood out for me for all the interviews that I did is, you know, every single person that I talked to, they would often talk about their, their patients as if they were their own animals. Anyone who is working as a veterinarian or the vet tech or the vet assistant, they're there because they love these animals and they, and they love and they want to do the best that they can for them. And on the other side, of course, you know, if you own a pet, you love them so much. But I think that for people who have been, you know, waiting weeks for appointments who are also dealing with COVID restrictions, you know, there's a lot of stress. And unfortunately, some people are not handling that appropriately. And so if, if there's any huge thing I want people to take away from the story is, you know, to, even if you're frustrated, even if you're worried about your animal, please take a breath and, and understand you're dealing with medical professionals who themselves are under a lot of strain and are really just trying to do the best for you and your pet. It's a very hard circumstance for everybody. H.G. Watson, contributor to The Guardian. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. And then we ran some statistics on it. And as you mentioned, we identified these nine groups. We found four that are 
oriented toward the Republican Party. That means you more of the people in those groups say they're either Republicans or lean towards the Republican Party. And we found four groups that are oriented towards the Democrats. Joining us now is Baxter Oliphant, senior researcher at the Pew Research Center. Thanks for joining us, Baxter. Thank you for having me. I wanted to talk about an interesting uh, look that you guys did into the political parties. You know, oftentimes we just think of liberal and conservatives, Democrat and Republicans, but uh, very little wiggle room for a third party, really. But, you know, when you look at these two groups, even within them, there's so many, so much diversity, right? You guys took a look into kind of how they they space out and kind of came up with nine different categories across these two major political groups. And that's why a lot of people might find it difficult to fit in one particular group. Uh, you know, they say, I might be socially liberal, but fiscally conservative and vice versa. It's tough to really pinpoint people down. So Baxter, tell us a little bit about the research you guys did, and then let's break these groups down. What we did is we conducted a survey with uh, a little bit more than 10,000 Americans over the summer is when we did most of this. And then we ran some statistics on it. And as you mentioned, we identified these nine groups. We found four that are oriented toward the Republican Party. That means you more of the people in those groups say they're either Republicans or lean towards the Republican Party. And we found four groups that are oriented towards the Democrats. And we had one where it's about evenly split between Republicans and Democrats. So it does seem that the majority of people do kind of identify with the two major parties, but with some slim room in the middle for certain people. Polarization between Republicans and Democrats is still in this, in what we found, is there's really big gaps between these groups. But the approach that we took in not just restricting it to the two parties allowed us to see that there are some differences even within the parties. So there's, for example, these four groups that say they're Republicans, but when we ask a lot of questions about their views about politics, their values that they bring to politics, then we can dive into that. And we will see there are things they agree about that unite them as Republicans, but there's still things that they disagree about. So for example, we found one of our Republican groups, which we call the populist right, that is much more skeptical about the economy and its fairness than other Republicans. The populist right, they're much more likely to support raising taxes than the rest of the party. They're much more likely to say that the profits corporations earn are not fair, which aren't the attitudes that might typically be associated with people who call themselves Republicans. Yeah, well, it's an interesting one because I, you would uh, kind of say that out. Those uh, tend to be, it looks like they'd be probably uh, supporters of former President Donald Trump, but they're also more willing to raise taxes, which is kind of a you know a, a weird uh, classification for them, I guess. The populist right—they're some of the strongest supporters of uh, former President Trump. But we find another group with different attitudes about taxes and the economy that are also very strong supporters of the former president. And this is our faith and flag conservatives group. And these two groups—the faith and flag conservatives and the populist right. They both make up about a quarter of the people we surveyed who call themselves Republicans. So they're a big chunk of the party. They both support Trump, but they have different attitudes where the populist right group has you know, a little skeptical about the economy. The faith and flag conservatives, they're the folks who really are 
active in their faith compared to a lot of other groups. They want to see the government support religious values. They see religion as very important to the country. They're also the most likely group to say that the U.S. is the best country in the world. So they're they're very patriotic and very yeah. religious and also a, a key part of the Republican coalition. In this Republican-leaning group, we also have the committed conservatives. These are probably what you would call more of like your traditional conservative, it seems like, pro-business, limited government. A lot of them are less enthusiastic about President Trump and uh, big fans of Ronald Reagan. And then we have those uh-huh. that are called the ambivalent right, which are an interesting group. These are the youngest of the right-leaning groups. Yeah, uh, this ambivalent right group is very interesting. They're the only Republican-oriented group where the majority don't call themselves conservatives. Many of them do call themselves conservative, but the biggest group within this uh, ambivalent right call themselves moderates. They see themselves as moderates. They're the most diverse Republican-oriented group. About 65% of them are non-Hispanic whites, where in the other Republican-oriented group, it's 80% or more that are white. And this ambivalent right group is particularly interesting because what seems to unite them to the Republican Party is they are conservative on many economic issues and issues with the government. Like like other members of the Republican Party, they think the government's doing too much. They'd like to see a smaller government, but they're more moderate on social issues. So for example, they're quite a bit more moderate on abortion compared to the rest of the party. What do we see when we're looking at the Democratic-leaning groups? We see progressive left, establishment liberals in this group. We're also looking at uh, the Democratic mainstays and the outsider left, which is kind of similar to the ambivalent right group. Yeah, on the Democratic side, we ha- as mentioned, we have these four Democratic-oriented groups. As you mentioned, the outsider left is a little bit similar to the ambivalent right. They're young. They're the youngest group. The outsider left is the youngest group. What's very interesting about them is they have liberal views on almost every issue we asked about on the survey, but they're still not crazy about the Democratic Party. They say they don't really feel represented by the party. They say they often struggle to find candidates that represent their views. So while they're not Republicans, the outsider left, they're very cold. We asked what's called a feeling thermometer, where people can rate how warmly or coldly they feel towards the part, uh, Republicans and Democrats. They're very cold towards Republicans, but they're only lukewarm toward Democrats, which is, which is very interesting. And when we look at the other groups, progressive lefts, those are likely to side with Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, establishment liberals. The Democratic mainstays are more moderate uh, in their leaning. Mm -hmm. And the establishment liberals, I I guess, uh, they're generally upbeat about politics in the country. They agree with, I guess, the Democratic leadership as well. The establishment liberals are the most optimistic about how things are going in the country right now. What was so interesting about this survey, these 10,000, you know, approximately 10,000 Americans we interviewed, they're members of the Pew Research Center's American Trends Panel. So we randomly recruited these people, but they take surveys for us uh, about once or twice a month. And so we can compare. We, we did this main survey over the summer, but then in September, we re-interviewed these people. And in September, the establishment liberals were the group most likely to approve of Joe Biden's performance as president. Other Democratic groups were approving, but they were the highest. And so they are a group that's a little more comfortable with where the leadership is on the party. They're more open to compromise than particularly the progressive left. 
And what's very interesting, so this is the eighth time the Pew Research Center and, and the, the organizations that came before it have done what we call our political typology. And usually there's only been one group of liberals. This is the first time that we have two groups of liberals. So we have the establishment liberals and the progressive left, where they're both very liberal, but they do tend to have different kind of attitudes, where the establishment liberals are a little more optimistic, the progressive left a little bit less optimistic, want to see bigger changes want to confront the problems they care about a little more aggressive. And we're seeing a lot of that play out right now in what's going on with all the debate over the infrastructure bill, the spending plan, the Build Back Better plan. Democrats are pretty divided on a lot of this stuff. We're seeing it play out in real time. We're seeing these different factions kind of present themselves. Okay, so those are the main eight groups for either the Democratic-leaning or the Republican-leaning Who's in the middle? And I love the, uh, way, I love the way you you label them, the stressed sideliners. Yeah, this is a very interesting group. They are our least politically engaged group. That's why, that's why we're calling them sideliners. They're not totally disengaged from politics, but compared to the other groups, they're much less likely to have voted in 2020. This is another advantage of them coming from our American Trends panel. We have data on a validated turnout, which means we, we match them to turnout records. And they were much less likely to vote. They're much less likely to talk about politics kind of growing up, to like, you know, they're just less engaged politically. So that's the sideliners part of the name. And we call them stress sideliners because this group also stands out for being a bit more likely to come from lower income families. And they're the most likely group to say when we surveyed them in September that their finances are either not great or really bad. So these are people that are not politically active, but are very concerned about how the economy is going, more likely to be right. low income. You asked this question, you know, with the articles that you guys presented, is there a middle in politics today? And I thought that was the interesting thing, because a lot of people, I bet, are willing to say, I'm a, an independent or I'm something like this. I don't want to fit into one of the other parties. And going off of you know, these categories that we've presented so far, the ones in the middle are the stress sideliners, the outsider left and the ambivalent right. But they just have so little in common politically, which is that interesting uh, dichotomy there. Yes, it is very interesting in how the data really does reveal that these groups that we call kind of Republican leaning, so the ambivalent right or the outsider left, you know, they lean left, but they lean those directions. But that doesn't mean they're like, very close to the other side on a lot of issues. Right. Both of these coalitions have a lot that unites them. And a lot of it is just their views towards government. You know, among the Republican groups, they all want a smaller government. Among the Democratic groups, they think the government should doing, be doing a little bit more. But there are other ways in which they do break away a little bit. And how we define the middle also makes a big difference. Like, as you mentioned, there are these three groups that are kind of the most middly, but there are parts of the others that you could also see potentially being peeled away from one side or the other on some issue. Yeah, it's just a, a really interesting look into how everybody kind of splits out. You know, you talk about the partisanship, the polarization that's going on, and all of this is evidenced of that. Everybody's all over the place. And, uh, you know, whether you lean one way or the other, you're not always going to agree with everybody else in your party. So just an interesting look at uh, these nine different groups now. Baxter Oliphant, senior researcher at the Pew Research Center. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media 
at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. <laughs>